Good morning, Redemption Flagstaff. Hi, my name is Seth, and I am not a pastor here. Uh, I'm actually a pastor at Redemption Church Gateway, one of our, your sister congregations. If you're a guest, uh, you probably won't see me for a very long time. So welcome to Redemption Flagstaff, but I'll see you sometime another time. But I, I'm a pastor on staff at Redemption Gateway, which is uh, the furthest congregation from here, except for Redemption Tucson. So uh, we took a little trip here this morning, but it's so good to be here with you. Uh, three of the local elders at our church came with me. They're sitting right here in the middle. If you're wondering who those guys are doing, that's what they're doing here. But uh, it's good to be here. Uh, we love you all. You know, we're, we're, you're like our family of cousins. You know, our, we're t- joking, our slightly more hippie-ish Flagstaff cousins, but you know, we have... <laughs> Cousins are cousins. My parents uh, went to NAU, and so they spent their enough time barefoot at Macy's for everybody. So uh, we kind of understand uh, the vibe. So it's good to good to be up here. I'm grateful I get to be here. Anthony asked me to come and teach this text, and I never really know when I get invited to guest teach if it's because uh, the the leaders avoiding teaching something or if they think I'm particularly good at teaching something. Uh, either way, I'm I'm here to teach on this one. But this. Uh, this Thomas text is actually really close to my heart. I actually have a painting hanging in my office that depicts this. It's called The Incredulity of St. Thomas by Caravaggio. Uh, it's a pretty kind of intense painting. When people walk in, they see it and they kind of get thrown off. I don't know if we have a picture of it I could put on the screen or not. Uh, I told Anthony about it. Maybe it didn't make it to anybody, but he can give me a thumbs up, thumbs down. So maybe not. Anyway, you can Google Incredulity of Thomas. It's pretty. It's pretty gory looking painting. People walk in and get shocked because it's... It's Jesus holding up his side and Thomas sticking his finger straight into his side. And so when people come in for pastoral counseling, they're at least triggered right away by the, the goriness of the brutality of the painting. But it's, I really like it because it just, it's a really fleshy uh, picture. You know, I think sometimes faith feels very spiritual out there, up there, uh, far away. Uh, but this text is very slow motion. Right? A lot of what happens in the Bible is there's all these stories that are fast and you kind of go through them. But really, these last couple of chapters in John, everything is really slow. Extremely slow. Like you have multiple, multiple chapters that cover a very short span of time. And this is one of these chapters. And we see the way it comes really fast and really slow. And everything kind of zooms in. Uh, you can see John's trying to grab your attention and make you look at certain things and get really close. But one of the things, too, that's just encouraging to me about this text is not just how Thomas questions and doubts and wrestles, but the main thing that I want us as Redemption Church, Redemption Church Flags, in particular, to be encouraged by is how Jesus treats doubters, which is us. Right? We're all doubters. Right? One of the things I hope that we come to a place of really believing is that having doubts doesn't make us special, but it makes us universal. Right? The question is not, will you doubt? The question is, to what extent and for how long and about what and what will be the trigger of it, etc., etc. And so uh, when we see Jesus being gentle with Thomas here, I hope that we see him being gentle with us, and that enables us to be gentle with other people as they doubt. Uh, I think about, you know, so I have two kids, and one of them is two and a half, one of them is two months old, and, you know, they tell you ahead of time, uh, you know, babies cry, and you're like, I got it. But then when your baby's crying, it doesn't really help that you had the information ahead of time. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's like on day two, you know, baby's crying, you don't know what's wrong, screaming at 3 a.m. And you're going, if God was real, why do babies cry, right? And it's, you know, and all of a sudden you have this like deconstruction nightmare situation at 3 a.m. You're going, if God designed this whole thing and, 
You know, in Genesis 3, it says, in pain you'll bring forth children, you know, and I'm going, I knew that. I had the information ahead of time. But what we kind of realize is that none of these things are just purely intellectual. They're all very relational, right? And so, so I'm serious. I'm like at 3 a.m., baby's crying, and I'm going like, how could God be real and babies cry? This seems such a design flaw. What is going on here? I don't really get it. And but in, even going back to like more that that period of me being an atheist lasted about sixty-five minutes. You know, but there there are other seasons where you're doubting for more intense reasons. Like my freshman sophomore year of college, uh, I was you know interning at a church and I was discovering Reformed theology, Calvinism, God's sovereignty, suffering in the world. I was a philosophy major. I was reading all these things, rationalism, discourse, etc., etc. Uh, I went to ASU, so my philosophy degree wasn't even that good. But I, we, you know, but we, 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 we acted like it was in the moment, you know. And we, and you go through real kind of seasons where it, you think that your deconstruction and your doubts are purely uh, rational, um, but actually, what makes them really difficult is that you know they're very relational. Right, like, it, and that's true of all of our relational tension with people. Are they who I think they are? Uh, do I have the right assessment of them? Can I trust my previous experience with them based on my next experience with them? And so, uh, we shouldn't call doubts emotional because that tends to feel like we're minimizing them. But because of the relational, they are therefore emotional, and we're charged up into them. And that's part of what we see with Thomas here. And I think when I see this text, we read tone into it all the time. This is why I think communicating serious matters through email and text message is basically a bad idea. If I was going to give all of you relationship, marriage, dating advice right now, I'd say stop doing that and just do it in person because trying to read tone is pretty hard. But here you have Thomas saying in chapter 20, or verse 25, other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the hands and marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark and place my hand into the side, I'll never believe. Now try and put yourself in Thomas's shoe. How is he saying this? Because we can read that like it's a stubborn three-year-old who's like, I'm not eating the broccoli unless you prove it to me that it's healthy. Like, and it's, I will never believe. Is it a foot stomp? I'm not doing it. But I tend to interact with people who are doubting, and it's way more like sense of disappointment in self than it is stubbornness. I believe that you believe that. But unless I put my fingers in his side, I'm just not going to be able to believe. Like, I want to believe, but I can't. I can't lie about it. Like, there's like almost a desperation, I think, is going on with Thomas. Remember Thomas, just in John chapter 11, when Jesus says, I need to go to Jerusalem to die, he goes, well, let's all go die with him. Thomas was pretty fired up. He was not like kind of namby-pamby, pseudo-follower. He was going, yeah, let's all go die with Jesus. Even G- Thomas has seen Jesus raise people from the dead. G- Thomas has seen Jesus do miracles. Thomas has seen... So there's the power and divinity of Jesus has been well attested. And here we have Thomas, who just had this massive fear of missing out thing come true. Everyone's hanging out, and he's not there, and he misses out on Jesus showing up. Imagine Thomas... Was, what, why wasn't Thomas there? We don't know. Maybe he like had an errand to run. You know, maybe his... His mom needed something. Maybe he just needed to use the restroom. I don't know. But he comes back in the room a couple hours later, and they're like, Jesus was here. And they're like, he's like, this is why I don't go places. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus was here in this room? Yeah, we saw him. He showed us his wounds. We all felt a ton of shame for our cowardice and our disbelief. 
and he reminded us that his wounds heal. And we got glad. At first, we were kind of embarrassed. We were like, man, we bail on you fast. But now we're here. Tom's going, so obviously you're going to believe because you saw that. I didn't see that. I'm supposed to take your word for it? Oh, my gosh. And I, if he's around, I'd love to see it for myself. But unless I touch his wounds myself, I can't, I can't do this. I mean, that feels fair, right? We call Thomas, if you grew up in church, doubting Thomas, like he's some you know, stubborn, pain-in-the-butt guy. But if, like, if he's around and risen, well, bring him on. I think even in the previous time we see Jesus appear risen, show his wounds, my guess is Thomas is asking what everybody else is thinking. Can I touch that wound? Are you a ghost? Am I imagining this? Did someone put an extra ingredient in the brownies we just ate? What's going on? I think I see Jesus. Thomas is one going, I need to touch him. If he's physically risen, I need to physically touch him. I need, I need that presence. I need that evidence. And so to some degree, I think Thomas is just honest. Some of you who wrestle with doubts, some of you wrestle with deconstruction, reconstruction, whatever it is, I think to some degree that's just people who are more honest. I have doubts that I'm unwilling to just squish them, but I'm trying to address them. I have serious questions. I have concerns. Relational issues. Thomas has every reason to trust these disciples. They're not liars. But yeah, at the same time, he's like, I need, I need to go through this thing on my own. And here's the next thing I think we see in this text, which is really interesting. So uh, we have a couple of firefighters who go to our church, and I really appreciate them because sometimes when you're part of a church, it feels like all you're kind of doing is crisis management, especially like through COVID. It's who's sick, who's on the edge, who's, who's rebelling, who's doubting. Who's, and you're kind of, it's easy to get tossed around by like the winds and waves of current events and stuff stressing you out. And talking to firefighters who they only roll up on terrible, going, how do you kind of keep caring for people and at the same time not go home and like be present to your kids when you just are up close and personal trauma all the time? And one of the things that this firefighter says, his name is Dave Lopez, he's like, the thing that they teach us and that we tell ourselves is, this is not my emergency, it is their emergency, and I'm here to help. Because if I make it my emergency, then I'm way too emotionally invested and it actually makes me a worse paramedic, a worse firefighter. And that's some, to some degree that this idea of what, is, what actually is an emergency. And sometimes people call and it's not an emergency. You have to roll up and say, I know this is an emergency to you, but this is not an emergency. Uh, it's kind of like the other weekend or the other week I hear my son yelling, no, 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 help, help, help. And I'm going, and I kind of run to the back room and he's like trying to pull a blanket through his, the hole in his crib and he can't get it out. And I'm like, Jay, this is not an emergency. But it's hard when you're kind of up close in it and you're connected to discern what's an emergency, what's not an emergency. I think that's part of what makes first-time parenting rough is everything feels like an emergency and you talk to folks who've been there, done that, and they're like, that's not an emergency, that's called having a baby. So, But so... I think sometimes, especially like in evangelical Bible culture, having doubts or having concerns or wrestling through stuff, it feels like an emergency. But one of the things that kind of, just a little detail in this text that encourages me is actually verse 26. Eight days later, the disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. 
So Jesus, sovereign God, knows all things, isn't surprised by anything, knows Thomas is having this crisis of faith, doubting situation. Thomas is going, I don't believe. He's been with Jesus for three years, obviously he doesn't believe. And Jesus just lets him cook on it for eight days. Let him, let him sit in that tension. Let him feel what it feels like to be an atheist for eight days. Let him wrestle with it. That for Jesus, doubting is not an emergency that requires immediate intervention. This is hard for us because when we have doubts, we want God to treat it like an emergency and we want him to immediately intervene and save us from that emotional relational tension. But for Jesus, the doubts of Thomas are not an emergency. I don't know what Jesus was doing for those other eight days. Maybe John didn't either. Maybe he didn't think it's important. But the point is, was Jesus had other stuff to do. And he didn't let Thomas's doubts derail his whole situation. He goes, I'll come to Thomas when the timing's right for Thomas. I'll show up to him in a way that's going to be helpful to him. But I think we sometimes feel so much shame around our doubts or our questions or our concerns. And we feel like it's this massive emergency. But just hear, hear me when I say this, that when you have doubts, it's not an emergency for Jesus. He sees the whole scope of your life. He sees the arc of your life. He sees the moments of strong faith, the moments of weak faith. He's going to show up on his own timing. He's going to reveal himself to you on his own timing. And he leaves us to just sit with that tension. And we don't have to like it, but we do have to accept it. Writers have for thousands of years written about a phenomenon they call the dark night of the soul. When you there are moments where you have this faith that feels strong and it feels bold and it feels awesome and you're certain and you're secure. And then these moments where it feels like the sun isn't shining in your soul and you're going, I'm drifting into this unbelief or I'm questioning God or even worse, I'm not questioning God, I'm questioning his goodness and it's difficult. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis, when his wife died, he t- shares this story about how he feels like he's knocking on the door and praying and he just hears God locking the door on the other side won't come in. In the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 22, it talks about, I pray, but it's like God has wrapped himself in clouds and the prayers bounce right off. Like This is not a new phenomenon to question God or question God's goodness. Thomas here is following in a long line of God's people who wrestle with doubts or feeling like God's distant or closed off. And so there's a tradition of doubters throughout the Bible. This is one of the reasons why when I speak with people who are deconstructing or having doubts is one of the biggest lies that I think Satan wants to throw in when we're doing this is to believe that we're walking some new path, that we're innovators, that we're, we're free thinkers for the first time, that everyone else is a sheep, but I, I'm a thought leader. Uh, and we intellectualize and we start to feel special because we have doubts, questions, concerns. But recognizing that Dealing with these like relational or intellectual problems is nothing new. It's been going on for a long time. Jesus lets it happen. And he lets it happen usually for a lot longer than we want it to let happen. I'm sure Thomas is like, if I don't see him, I'll never believe. Eeny, meeny, miny, where's Jesus? You know, five, four, three, two, one, where is he? Summon the Lord, you know, where's he at? Jesus, come on down. If you're here, if you hear me, Lord, you know. And he has to go through sleepless night after sleepless night after sleepless night. 
Meanwhile, the people that he's around are all fired up and excited because they got to see the risen Lord. And Thomas is left feeling on the outside, looking in, because they all had the shared experience that solidified their faith. But they're on the outside. He's looking in. And Jesus just lets this happen. And this is part of his sovereign wisdom. Sometimes the main thing he uses to grow us is discomfort, tension, being forced to wait, the feeling of being on the outside, the feeling of missing out. And again, we're not supposed to like that. But we do have to accept it. Eight days later, he shows up. All the doors are locked. Jesus came and stood among them, and he says, Peace be with you. We hear that word peace, and we think, you know, absence of war. We see the word peace, and we think, some of the pie, or whatever. Uh, but peace could also be translated harmony. It means resonance. Like when two notes go together, they complement, they go together. When Jesus says, peace be with you, he's proclaiming connection, resonance. Even with Thomas in the room, Thomas's doubt's not disqualifying him from some having some connection with God Most High. So you think you'd say dissonance between us? There's tension between us? We have problems because of your stubbornness? But he appears to Thomas and he says, Peace, you and I still go together. Nothing to worry about. Like, Do you see the gentleness of Christ as he's interacting with doubters? Not, have you been reading Pagans again? <laughs> Not, oh, don't watch that YouTube channel. That'll mess you up. He shows up and he goes, Peace with you. He reassures with his presence. This is one of the things I think it's important for us as we wrestle with doubts to understand is we think the answer we need is evidence. But a lot of the times, what we need more than evidence is presence. The first solution that Jesus gives to Thomas's doubts is his non-anxious, gracious, kind, loving presence. Peace be with you. When I talk with folks who are questioning God or questioning God's goodness, goodness, they're far off, one of the things I try to encourage people to do is to realize that some of what we need is presence. Most of the wounds we have that create doubts are relational. This is one of the reasons why in, in the entire deconstruction conversation that's happening all over American evangelical culture, a lot of it's rooted in mistrust or hurt that's come from churches and church leadership. If those people did this to those people, then how can God be good? If those people did that to me, then how could God be good? And we project our experience of church leaders onto God. And so what happens is when the presence of other people is what caused the pain, we want to withdraw from other presence. But everything you read and you research and you look at when it comes to like the healing of trauma, it's not unpresence that heals us, but it's different presence that heals us. It's showing up. It's the courage to step in the room, to sit at the table, to learn new names, to learn new faces, to see people, to risk the vulnerability of letting yourself being seen, to be curious, to see others, to show up. God's prescription for our doubts begins with presence, but then it does eventually move to evidence. We say, here, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, just put yourself in Thomas's shoes. Unless I see, I won't believe. Jesus shows up, eye contact with the risen Lord. Just visualize this. In your moment of doubt, in your moment of, I don't know if I can believe, in your moment of separation, in your moment of feeling left out, in the kind of the shame that comes from not being as certain as everybody else, Jesus shows up, looks right to Thomas, and he says, 
Put your finger here. See my hands. He's showing him the wounds that healed him. Put out your hand. Put your finger here. See my hand. Put out your hand. Like he starts to tell him. No, literally, really put out your hand. Don't. I'm not just being hypothetical here. No, put out your hand. That painting I told you about. Jesus grabbing Thomas's hand and dragging it to his hand. Place it in my side. Believe. The beauty of this picture of Jesus accommodating Thomas, giving Thomas what he needs to help him believe. Jesus doesn't do this with the other disciples. He doesn't do this with other people. It's what Thomas needs, and he gives Thomas what he needs. Sometimes fairness is treating everybody differently. Those of you with multiple kids, you treat all your kids different. Hopefully not because you like them differently, but because you know their needs and you meet their needs differently. Jesus gives Thomas what he needs to address his doubts. Come here. Place your hand right here. See, there's all this action that in John. Jesus heals people. Jesus does this. He goes here. He says this. He says these phrases. And these are like some of the slowest moments. Literally, the Greek grammar is changing tense in a way that's meant to you to slow down. And we're going from kind of watching a movie to like looking through a magnifying glass. Thomas. How gentle, how pastoral, how fatherly, how brotherly. Add the adjective to it you want. He doesn't show up to Thomas and go, Thomas, knock it off. Just quit being stubborn. Thomas, pretend you just believe like everybody else. Thomas, what makes you so arrogant is to think that you need evidence. Other people just saw from a distance. Why do you think you need to touch me? Other people didn't need to touch me. Think you're better than other people? Just believe. He's gentle. He's kind. He guides them in. This is verse 28. And this is one of the next point I want to make. Is that ultimately doubts properly stewarded and properly treated are always going to be productive. Doubts are productive. They produce better theology. They produce better relational connection. They produce better faith than doubts that are just shoved, canned, or dismissed. I mean, doubts are difficult. Right? This is true in all relationships. In marriage, in business partnerships. There are those questions that you don't really want to ask because if you ask them, it'll make your life certainly more difficult in the short term. And that feeling of being questioned isn't pleasant. But when you get it on the table and you deal with reality, not just perceived reality, when the gap closes between who we think others are and who they are, and we get to deal with them as they are, not just as we project them to be, that creates more meaningful connection. This is true in my marriage. That when we deal with reality, not just with projected reality, it tends to be harder because we're both sinners and we know that in theory but when it gets specific it gets more difficult and you deal with reality and the connection's deeper it's true with Jesus here doubting is ultimately productive Jesus answered him my Lord and my God Thomas the doubter ends up being the best and clearest theologian we see in the Gospel of John 
Up until this point, Jesus has made obvious claims of divinity through his actions, through his words, through his deeds, the I am passages. He's greater than Abraham. He's walking on water. He's doing God's stuff all the time. So throughout the book of John, Jesus is proving himself to be God. But this is the first clear, absolute, undeniable attestment to the divinity and like co-equality with the Father that we have in the Gospel of John is Thomas, when his doubts are addressed, touches him and says, My Lord, my God! Sometimes we're doubting because we have insufficient or inferior or naive or just bad theology. And so you have to doubt your bad theology in order to get better theology. Maybe to this point, Jesus thought, or Thomas had thought, you know, Jesus, pretty good, you know, prophet. You know, some of the prophets did cool stuff too, you know. Dismantle some of that and experience the risen Lord. And now he's a better theologian. He has better theology. He has better belief. He has better faith. Not only that, but his faith ends up having ripple effects throughout the millennial, throughout generations. Now all of us in this room get to hear Thomas' proclamation, My Lord, my God! Because Thomas honestly and with courage and, and great curiosity addressed his doubts, we all reap the benefits of hearing Thomas say, My Lord, my God. Maybe the disciples up to this point knew that Jesus was risen, but they hadn't yet connected the dots. Maybe they just thought, He's a prophet, conquering death. Maybe they just thought, maybe kind of like Lazarus, Jesus is like Lazarus. But here Thomas Puts the final nail in the coffin on the questions about Jesus' divinity. My Lord, my God, his doubt's productive. How beautiful is that? Some of you who are wrestling with doubts or various times of things, I hope you see that actually going down the journey of addressing your doubts or questions or concerns, either their relational or their evidence situations, that you see, I'm not just doing this for me. But me addressing my doubts honestly and courageously and with grit actually is for the benefit of the kingdom. It's for the benefit of others. Whenever I kind of find a question that gets lodged in my head that I'm going, that, that you know, stresses me out, keeps me up at night, if I go and do the research, if I do the work, if I, if I keep on the path, always, without exception, in the coming weeks, months, or years, I meet someone or usually multiple people who've had the same questions, and I can go, I've done the work to help you with this. And so one of the things I've learned to do is treat my doubts as God's invitation for me to get sharper for the sake of other people's benefit. It's not always just me having a question and me having a doubt or me not having enough faith. Sometimes it's the Spirit prompting me to do work on behalf of others. But the evidence is there. Right, like there's all these concerns and questions about can you trust the Bible? Is God in the midst of suffering? Uh, do we really think the creeds are written by helpful, meaningful people? Can we really submit to uh, Paul's testimony? Can we really all of these kind of ongoing meaningful questions? I hope you know that people have been asking these questions for two thousand years. It's not like the 1960s rolled around, people started doing more drugs, and people kind of kind of wanted to have sex with more than just their spouse, and all of a sudden now there's like doubts. This is not new. They take on different shape, different form, different, different, different containers. But people have been wrestling with the authority of Scripture. People have been wrestling with the goodness of the Christian sexual ethic. People have been wrestling with the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God in the midst of suffering for thousands of years. The answers are out there. I think one of the main things we need to do is just to humble ourselves and realize that other people have done the work and go listen to it. I think this is one of the big differences between me having my first kid and having my second kid is... 
with the first kid, I made some joke to the church. If you have any advice, I'd love for you to be invited to keep it to yourself. You know, because I was like, you know, we're going to do this on our own. We'll read our own stuff. And, you know, I, I was kind of feeling insecure about people just throwing advice at me and me having to, like, listen to it and pretend that I cared. And so I, I just said, no advice. Uh, but with the second kid, I'm like, anybody got any advice? Because I'm done. I, you know, kind of hit my limit sometimes. And so I got a lot more advice this time. And I don't know if it's all good. I don't really know. But it's, I would like to think, I mean, this is the hope in all Christian life, is that I'm at least slightly more humble than I was two years ago. I hope I can say that again in two years. Uh, but my openness to more wisdom, more advice, bring it on, ha- really has changed first kid, second kid. And... Uh, you know, if we have a third kid, I'll basically just ask people to drop books off at my house on the way or something like that. But, but openness to receiving counsel, advice, feedback I, from other people who have walked it before, it's not all going to apply. It's not all going to land. Uh, one of the things that happens, too, when people doubt is someone comes and says, like, oh, and I had doubts, here's what I did. And then you do that and it didn't help, and then you just get bitter at that person. You're like, well, their advice didn't help. It's like, well, all people have is what helped them. So sometimes people give you stuff that helped them and it won't help, you know. That's just the nature of deal. You know, we got a lot of advice. We have a fussy kid, and people give us advice, and most of it doesn't translate, and that's not their fault. I can't be bitter at them about that. They're trying to help. People want to help you work through doubts, and you get, part of what you have to deal with is when you invite help, not all help will help. But some of it will. And so you take it, and you run with it. My Lord and my God, and Jesus says to them in verse 29, Have you believed because you've seen me? Again, tone matters. Is Jesus mocking Thomas? Oh, you had to see me to believe? Because I think when I was younger, at least, I read it like that. You had to see me? That's how weak your faith is? You had to touch me? Other people are going to believe without seeing me? Kind of this shamey Thomas thing? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and have believed. Meaning, other people are better than you, Thomas, because you need evidence. Other people are going to need less evidence. But that's not the tone that I see Jesus using here. He's going, you saw me to believe. Other people are going to believe without seeing me, and blessed are they. It's hard when you're trying to get someone to believe something where they can't see it. Just yesterday, my wife was drinking a glass of wine, and a fly landed in it, which seems to always happen. And then so then she dumped the wine into the sink to like get the fly out. And my son Jay's like, what are you doing? Like, why are you dumping out? Uh, wine uh, and so we're like oh there's a fly in it he said can I see it it's like no it's in the drain can I see it no you're trying to help a two and a half year old understand the flies in the drain can I see it okay here's the drain where's the fly it's in the drain it's down the pipe uh, you can't see it well I want to see it it's like okay so he's like I don't know if he's going there's no fly you know or, he's, or but you're trying to help I can't help you see that I don't tell you like you have to take my word for it that at some point we're always doing I trust you to tell me the truth about what you've experienced and I can experience it vicariously and that's okay. Like this is part of the nature of why the, the church community is so important. This is one of the reasons why Jesus left behind a people, not just a bunch of documents with photo evidence of his resurrection. It's because we are always trusting relationally. We're always working through this process in community, as people. And Jesus is saying, there are people who are going to believe and they haven't seen, and blessed are they. I think it's more of a positive thing than him rebuking Thomas and saying there's other people with more faith than you who don't need as much evidence. But he's recognizing that different people seem to require different amounts of evidence to believe, 
And that's not shaming or upholding higher other people. He's just saying, blessed are those who are able to believe without putting their finger in my side. And if I'm not mistaken, that's all of you who believe. You've not put your finger in the side of Jesus. This is why the kind of the transition here in verse 29, there are many who believe who have not seen me. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is kind of like the, the end of the main thing. Verse chapter 21 is kind of like an epilogue of sorts. It's going, you all are going to believe on the basis of the testimony of others, but there's still that personal presence thing that matters. This is one of the reasons why we take communion every week, one of the reasons why we gather to sing every week, one of the reasons why we do this is that we are here to experience the body of Christ. You may not have put your finger in the side of the flesh of Jesus, but we're the body of Christ, and you've entered in and you've touched and seen and tasted the work of the Spirit in this group of people. And I hope that we understand when we encounter people who are wrestling with the reality of Jesus or the goodness of God or have doubts or deconstruction, whatever we want to put on it, that they too probably need to touch the body of Christ that's faithful to the presence of the Spirit, that's marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And that's the type of community we're trying to be. Going, we don't have the physical body of Jesus, but we have the spiritual body of Jesus. Come and touch his side. Come close, come see, put your hand here. Taste and try. Because evidence and presence is the way we all believe. And sometimes the real presence by the Spirit of Christ in the gathering is one of the main ways we believe. When I talk to people who have come to faith, most of them had something to do with the gathered body of believers singing and proclaiming and praising and singing. And the Spirit works in a special way when the people gather, people of God gather and the Word is preached and the sacraments are given. And so see this as special. Because for a lot of us, myself included, the experience Thomas has with Jesus, the closest thing we get to some of that is in these types of spaces. It really matters. So I hope that we as Redemption Church as a whole, Redemption Flagstaff in particular, that we're able to really see our doubts not as emergencies, but to some degree as invitations into deeper, more pure, more robust faith. And that Jesus is going to meet us in the midst of those with his presence and with the evidence that's out there. Let me pray for us that we can walk that path. Jesus, I pray that we'll see how gentle you are with Thomas and that we'd see how gentle you are with us. I pray against feelings of shame that lead us to want to hide our doubts or questions or concerns or feelings of arrogance that make us think we're special or different because of our doubts or concerns. But Father, I pray that you'll energize us to do the work, to do the research, to find the evidence, and that you give us the humility to keep showing up and to keep asking your Spirit to move in our midst. Father, those, though we have not seen, we believe. I pray that you'll help us believe our unbelief. God, I pray that we hear the, hear the words that you said to Thomas, peace be with you, and we hear your voice saying those to us, that we still go together, we still resonate. Regardless of the strength of our faith, 
you're proclaiming peace to us. So give us security even as we falter and waver. In Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.